If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Picture the scene, I'm 18 years old, half my life away now, and I went up to Cambridge and went to see my director of studies, uh, John Parry, who said, right, you've chosen medieval, which was a box I'd ticked at the beginning of the preceding summer holidays and hadn't given it too much extra thought. <laughs> uh, off you go to Sydney Sussex College and meet the supervisor's called Helen Castor, and so I did. And, I mean, it, it, she was brilliant. You know, you, you couldn't imagine how transformative Helen's teaching was. That was Dan Jones describing his history education. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. As regular listeners will be aware, all of this week we've been running special editions of the podcast to celebrate our 500th episode, where we're interviewing some of our favourite guests who've appeared since we began in 2007. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from the historian, author and broadcaster Dan Jones. Back in October 2015, Dan was interviewed for our podcast by fellow historian Helen Castor 
about his book on the year 1215. And that remains our most popular podcast ever, with more than 210,000 downloads so far. So it seemed fitting to welcome Dan back on the show for our 500th episode week, to explain the secrets of being a successful historian, and to discuss some of his most interesting projects to date. Our website assistant, Rachel Dinning, paid a visit to Dan in his home just outside of London, and here's how their interview went. So, Dan, I think it's fair to say that you're a historian who's very good at making medieval history popular. Um, You've had multiple best-selling books, and one of your previous podcasts with us, which explored medieval life in the year 1215, is officially our most downloaded podcast to date. So what, what do you think it is? What's the secret to your success? How do you make medieval history interesting? God, you haven't started me off with an easy one. Um, I, well, first of all, all of, all of that is, of course, extremely flattering. And I didn't know that statistic about the um, being the most popular. I've, you know, there's a, I don't know if you call it imposter syndrome. I think you probably do. But, I, I mean, I just sort of slightly don't believe it in the sense that whenever I go and give a talk, you know, like the BBC History Weekends in Winchester and York or whatever, I, I'm always amazed uh, to see a crowd. And I always feel a sort of sense of, um, well, they must have thought it was Dan Snow. I mean, plainly that, you know, this, this can't, they can't actually be here for, for this. And so to that extent, uh, you know, whenever I bump up against the question of, um, of trying to analyse why people want to listen to me, I'm, I'm sort of immediately just bump up against what is probably the kind of confines of my own self-doubt. What I can talk to is what I try to do with um, the books that I write, TV shows to to a certain extent as well, which is to say that I've tried to fuse two things. One is uh, scholarly research, and the other is a sort of a concentrated and highly focused approach to storytelling, which draws on um, the mechanics to an extent of fiction, but not really of fiction, much more the mechanics of television writing, screenwriting. Um, and I would say that you know, the, the longer I go on, the more it's about, always about those two things, you know, getting the research as up-to-date and as good and as solid and as, as reliable and as footnoted and as da-da-da-da-da, as everything as it possibly can be. And spending an immense amount of time on story architecture, story structure, the things that are familiar to anyone who watches Netflix uh, series or um, or big blockbuster movies, because I think that those tropes and shapes of storytelling are what, what we are exposed to so much and are so sophisticated in, in those genres that uh, to bring them into history is the obvious thing to do because we're in general telling human stories. And uh, if people respond to that, and, you know, from, from what you've said, I, I accept that they do and I'm very glad that they do and, and always sort of proud and even humbled when I, I experience it. I hope that that's what they're responding to. Um, what's your process then when writing a book? When you, when you say have an idea, what do, you, what, what do you sit down and do first? I basically start by reading an awful lot 
you know, around whatever subject it is, primary sources, secondary sources, you know, immerse yourself in, in the, the material. But in a sense, that's obvious. Of course I do. That's, that's what writing history is about. Now, what I used to do, I don't do this so much, is, is I used to work on what I call the grid, which is analogous if anyone's really studied the sort of uh, British politics in the 1990s to the uh, Alastair Campbell press grid. That wasn't a deliberate choice, I hasten to add. But it would be a, uh, so build it in um, Excel spreadsheet, and it would be a sort of uh, a box-by-box plan of the book, you know, chapter-by-chapter, what characters were going to go in there, what uh, key, you know, incidents, what primary, secondary sources are needed, what, you know, how themes fitted together. And I could see it. I'd build the book in this thing. I'd be able to see it. I'd be able to move things around. I'd be able to actually see what I call the skeleton, the bones of the story. Um, I, I now don't really do that. I don't do it on Excel. I now have, I've covered one of the walls in my office in corkboard. Um, and so now I do it on bits of paper that I can physically move around, um, a bit like a sort of analogue version of um, Minority Report or whatever. <laughs> seen that movie. Yeah. Uh, so I, I physically, but, but it's still the same thing. It's bits of paper with my kind of ideas moved around. And then, then I, you know, I spent a couple of months doing that sometimes, pacing around my office, um, listening to sort of deep house music and, uh, and just sort of thinking my way into and moving elements of the story around. And you, then I get to a stage where I've kind of fixed the shape of it in mind, then I start to write. And by that stage, the writing then comes pretty easy. Mm-hmm. It's a case of marshalling material, but, but the mecha- physical mechanics of writing don't take particularly long. But it's that story build stage that's the critical part of the work. What's the most challenging part for you? Is it finding the, you know, the historical facts or is it the actual piecing it together in a way that's fresh and interesting and and having this interesting narrative? You have to be in the right mood to do either one of them. So there can be days where I just fall asleep at my desk every day because I'm just trawling sources. And there can be days where I I stand in frustration in front of the corkboard because I can't marshal my ideas correctly. Uh, But I'm old and been around the block enough to not get too stressed out about that anymore and I you know fundamentally I really 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 love what I do and so I don't difficult isn't really the right word there are different sort of forms of challenge so we meant I mentioned this podcast our podcast with you that is the most popular hmm. it's, it's the most downloaded one ever um so it was the one you did with Helen Castor I don't hey. know if you can cast your mind back um was that a cast upon completely unintentional um yes so you were exploring medieval life in the year 1215 yeah um i believe helen castor actually taught you at university is that correct yeah you believe absolutely correctly (laughs) so uh picture the scene i'm 18 years old half my life i've got away now and i went up to cambridge and um went to see my director of studies uh, john parry who said right you've chosen medieval which was a box I'd ticked at the beginning of the preceding summer holidays and hadn't given it too much extra thought. <laughs> uh, off you go to Sydney Sussex College and meet um, your supervisors called Helen Castor. And so I did. And, I mean, it, it was... She was brilliant. You know, you, you couldn't imagine how um, transformative uh, Helen's teaching was. You know, she was, uh, and still is, um, but at that stage, she was, to me, shockingly brilliant um, in a way that I just hadn't encountered. You know, I'd never been in a room to be taught by a Cambridge 
Don or Oxbridge Don before in my life. I had no idea what to expect. And he was one who wasn't only fiercely and uh, and pointedly and, and um, uh, laser-guidedly bright, and uh, but was also kind of a sort of cool, young, um, <laughs> hip person who, who spoke the same sort of language and, and had the same cultural touch points that I did. And, uh, and we got on really well and, and still do get on really well. And, uh, and I, I just sort of learned pretty much everything I knew, firstly from, in medieval terms anyway, firstly from her and then from Christine Carpenter who'd taught her. Uh, and, and as well as many other brilliant medievalists working today. And um, and that was really, you know, it was her that got me hooked on the Middle Ages. First essay she sent me, I can still vividly remember, it was a, it was about King John. I think we probably talked about that in, in the podcast yeah, you, you referred to. <laughs> the, the first, you know, the, the title of the, the essay, I believe, I'll probably get it wrong now, was um, uh, what was the issue between John and the barons? Seems such a simple question, you know, but actually, in answering that question, you, you know, you're thrown like head first into the central constitutional question in England of the Middle Ages, from which you never escape, no matter which which king of the Plantagenet era you study. How strange is it now? Thinking eighteen year old, what would eighteen year old you think of the idea of you being interviewed by Helen all these years later? Um, and she's grilling you as you've just published this book and you're now an expert on that era. Well, in the sense of all peers. You know. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Well, 18-year-old me, I, I was very sort of uh, willful and, and hard-headed and, um, and sort of insouciant but also quite stubborn person at the age of 18 and to a degree probably still am, but um, I've just been had my eyes forcibly opened by age. I, I just don't think 18-year-old me, like 18-year-old most people, really would have cared. I didn't care very much. I'd been surprised if you'd have told me that I would still be talking about King John. I think the idea that, that this was more than... This was not just sort of weekly essay, which I was kind of passing through, and that actually, you know, as I say, that's literally half my life. I'm still basically talking about the same thing. I've been quite surprised to, um, to have known that, but not uh, not unhappy uh, or or rather if I if I look at it from this angle certainly not unhappy you know it's been a, it's been a wonderful sort of um, 18 years since that day why did you choose history at university did you you know did you want to go on to you can't predict the future and most teenagers don't know what they want to do but what was what was your thinking? I just I was it was my best subject at school, as, as they say. Classic answer. I don't know. It is. I mean, you don't have a massive yeah, range yeah. of of um, you, you know seen very much of life. You know, when I was eighteen years old, I'd been to school. Right? <laughs> and I didn't really know much else about the world, and I'd, I'd done my A levels. I did were history, economics, maths, and uh, English, and. I didn't want to be an economist. I was fairly sure of that. I'd, I'd seen enough graphs to know that it was something that I'd find dull. You know, mathematics was something I'd chosen to study because I wasn't very good at it. And I, I wanted to sort of, you know, pull myself up to a sort of base competence. Um, English, I mean, it's, I spoke English. I didn't, you know, I f didn't feel like a sort of, I, I mean, I would have gone and studied English probably had I not studied history. Um, but I'm glad I didn't because I, I wouldn't be very good at it. Um, 
But history, I just had a, a, a really great teacher called Mr. Robin Gre- Mr. Green. So I want to call him Mr. Green. His name's Robin Green. We're both adults now. Um, he was a fantastic, fantastic teacher. And uh, just really, really like, it taken me under his wing a little bit, but it's, I mean, don't, don't get into your head that this was the history boys. He was just a, a, a very good, enthusiastic, motivating teacher and encouraged me to go on and read his subject. And, and I, was, I was very glad to do so. Um, but there was no plan beyond that. I was going to go to university and read history and then see what happened at the end of it. Now, what happened to most people who read, who, who went down the sort of path within the Cambridge Tripos that I did, which is, you know, pretty much choose your own adventure, um, I ended up studying medieval English legal history. There were six of us in, in, when I was in my third year doing it. And the idea in most cases was that you went on from that to the bar because it was a good training in English constitutional history. So you would, you would go and do a law conversion course, bar vocational course, pupillage at, uh, you know, whatever chambers you're in. And then you'd be, you'd be a, a sort of bloke in a wig um, doing whatever you did, you know, whatever aspect of law. And, you know, I, I, I actually still thought probably when I graduated that would ultimately be where I, I got to. But then I just, just didn't. Just didn't do it. I had a girlfriend at the time who in, instead got, you know, fed up with me moping around not knowing what I wanted to do, and on my behalf applied to journalism school for me. So, I, you know, from one scurrilous profession to the other, <laughs> instead of going into law school, I went to journalism school. I didn't last very long there. Were you, was that a bit of a shock, going from writing history essays to the world of journalism, where I'm sure they were getting you to go out and find stories? I hated it, I hated it. I mean, it, it's funny saying that because, you know, I've also, I still write a lot of what you would call journalism but journalism school that I went to was I did one term there and then I left as they say in football by mutual consent (laughs) um uh but in in the newspaper journalism course that I took uh was to be like a a reporter you know actual serious journalism not the sort of stories yeah I mean I'm a writer I'm not I'm not a reporter and it yeah it was like Get a story every day. Death knock journalism, I call it. You know, there's sort of you know, got to be the kind of hound that's glad to, mm-hmm. you know, walk there's up a car to accident. You go knock on the door of knock, the knock. Who's, who's there? Died. Your yeah. son's dead. Give us a quote. Yeah. I mean, that sounds harsh, but uh, that was that was the sort of thing, and and I recognised immediately that I was absolutely not cut out for that. And I'm glad that I did as well, because I'm miserable pursuing it. And uh, my classmates were, were brilliant, were absolutely brilliant, because their girlfriends hadn't applied for them to go on this course. <laughs> They'd done it themselves. It was something they desperately knew they wanted to do. And, so, and many of them are, are high-flying, excellent uh, journalists now. And and, um, and I'm really glad that I, I sort of, you know, didn't actually see that through. But weirdly, I am glad. I mean, I, I carried on writing journalism, but just not of, of the... Uh, the hard variety. Yeah, the hard news. It's kind of interesting, though, because it's all about storytelling and what you do now is is storytelling and journalism's just a slightly different form of storytelling. I was going to ask, so there's a bit of a debate going on at the moment about higher education. I mean, obviously, fees have risen in recent years. People talk, what is the value of going to university? I mean, do you think that studying a subject like history at university or English, you know, one of these humanities, um, is there a value to to it? 
I find the the framework of this debate infuriating because value has been taken to mean uh, what in business is called return on investment, which is understandable given that you now you know you now have to borrow a lot of money to go to university, such that. We now are encouraged, I think deliberately, to think of higher education as a purely transactional thing. You know, you're going to pay uh, to make it okay, to try and justify um, charging people these amount of fees. Well, you know, if if you spend this money, we're going to allow you to borrow on the right subject. Don't worry, because you'll get a lot of money back. But I tell you what, don't bother doing those kind of wishy-washy subjects like the humanities, for God's sake, because we don't know where you're going to end up. So that you come up out with this weird idea, which is okay, not expressed by everyone, but often by particularly stupid government ministers, uh, who say things like, oh, "We don't want people taking medieval history." So it'll waste. Right, value in re- in terms of higher education is not return on investment. It is addition to your roundedness and fulfilment as a human being. And there is a reason why the humanities have persisted. Uh, at the centre of higher education for literally centuries and have have been a sort of higher form of knowledge for literally millennia. And that's because they have value. And whether we can, you know, account for that in terms of will you effectively make your money back on the loan we're now making you take out instead of, you know, the state providing higher education for you is neither here nor there. Uh, and it's it's um, it's it's sort of scoundrel argument to suggest otherwise because I you know if you look along like the front benches in in Parliament you're going to find a lot of people who did PPE SPS history I would venture even a couple who did English if you were to uh, look around the sort of well-to-do of the British acting elite, people like uh, Tom Hiddleston and Eddie Redmayne, who I went to university with. I think Eddie was there at the same time I was. Uh, if you look around the banking sector, if you look around almost every sort of successful industry, you're going to find people who went, went and studied humanities. It, it, it is not... It gets written off as a sort of a, a kind of frivolous waste of your time at university. And that just couldn't be anything further from the truth. We're turning out people who understand the sort of history and the condition of human society and have devoted a long time to thinking about it, studying it and analysing it. And, um, and if, you, if you can't put value on that, then we're, we're living in a, you know, a sort of a Philistine society. I, I, and I don't believe we are living in a Philistine society. I believe we're living in a society that is creating... Um, fake arguments to justify massive changes with regard to the structure of the of state spending. What would your advice be then to someone who is perhaps, you know, 18 and they, they you know, they look at you or they look at Helen Castor or Susanna Lipscomb or any, any of these historians who are sort of in the public eye um, and they think, oh, I'd like to do what they do or I'd like to write a history book. What would your advice be? Well, first you've got to study history. So put aside these mealy-mouthed arguments that it's a waste of your time. I think, you know, you mentioned me and Susie and Helen. I think we've all had pretty different paths. I mean, I've certainly not not taken the same path as as either of those two, and we've ended up broadly the same place. 
Um, I, I think it, a lot of it is about, firstly, there's your development as a historian and, and there's no uh, skirting around that. So I, I can understand the appeal of a sort of imagined career path where you go from doing a history degree to presenting civilizations. But um, there, there is, you do have to be a sort of, in some sense, credible historian, whether that's within academia, whether that's outside academia, or whether it's with a foot in both camps, which a lot of people, um, that's where they reside, I mean, our peers. Uh, And also accept that in doing that, um, there are a lot of people who want to parlay a sort of career in history into a a career in TV. Mm. I don't think a career in TV is something to aim at in the sense that it's going to be a career, like in the old fashions of lasting 40 years. Because if you think about how many people have been on television for 40 years, you know, you're down to like Bruce Forsyth, who's, you know, and a few football commentators and Hatton Deck, and they're not all 40 years yet. You know, most TV careers are very short, five yeah. years or fewer. Um, or you do a bit and then... Or you do a bit, you disappear, and, and, then, yeah. and then they get you out for the canal boat. See, I skipped the middle bit of that. <laughs> um, the, uh, so I think, I think it's, um, it's important to, to say, OK, if I, if I really want a career in history, then, you know, you do, you've got to do the sensible bit, which is, like, get a job find some way to make money, and then start scrabbling around with everybody else for sort of the, the, the limited number of, of TV gigs that there are. Were you um, ever tempted to go into academia? Yeah, actually, I skipped a bit of the story earlier, which was that uh, before I went to journalism college, I, I, I was wanted to do at least the first year of PhD, but then I didn't have any money and couldn't afford to do it. Um, but, you know, when I left Cambridge in 2002... Both Christine Carpenter, professor of, of English medieval history, and David Starkey, who'd been a supervisor and who I trusted and listened to, um, both told me basically not to go into academia for different reasons. Uh, Christine very perceptively said, you'll, you, you're not cut out for it. And David said, there's not enough money in it. <laughs> <laughs> and I told you something about both of them. Um, or no, I think David said, if you're going to do it, for God's sake, go to the States. Uh, pay you properly. Interesting. <laughs> um, but they were both right, you know, I wouldn't have been a very good academic. Do you think you have to have a certain kind of personality to go into, like, what you've done, which is, you know, TV presenting and stuff? You have to have that... Um, TV presenting... What, about you. TV presenting is uh, a very odd and unusual thing, an unnatural thing, let's say, to do. And bear in mind that for the majority of my life and the majority of my career, I've not been a TV presenter. That that actually is is about, literally about five years, which by my earlier mathematics indicates is very soon coming to an end. Um, let's hope not. It's a certain type of skill. And I was quite lucky when I started working for Channel 5 that I, they taught me, they gave me six weeks of, of sort of presenter training, which most people don't get. They just, just were sent out one day with a TV crew and, and expected to to know how to do it. And... There, you know, there are certain technical skills that you have to be able to deploy, otherwise it's very frustrating for your, your crew working with you. One of them's remembering your lines. Another one is uh, being able to analyse a script and a piece of camera and identify whether or not it's going to work and be able to, to involve yourself in the production process, which I 
though probably to the irritation of my producers. The the hard, what most people do, and I, I'm sure I did as, as well, maybe I still do, what most people do when they, they're first asked to present on television or on camera of any sort is immediately start, whether consciously or unconsciously, acting the role of a presenter. And they do present, sort of um, a whole range of unnatural mannerisms uh, that they've seen other presenters, usually like BBC News reporters, do. That's interesting because a news reporter is a completely different... Right, it is. But, it, <laughs> but it's sort of uh, different sentence construction, different yeah. intonations, um, different physical movements. And all of that is actually very hard to not do. Because the, because if you just sort of, you know, um, slouch about, slob about like... People always say, you've got to be yourself. Be Just be yourself on TV. If you're just yourself on TV, then it, it is... You, that, that doesn't work either. Mm-hmm. So you need to create a sort of slightly larger-than-life version of yourself that's not a caricature of uh, the generic TV presenter. And that's actually quite hard for most people to do. And it takes a lot of practice and experience, or it has taken me a lot of practice and experience anyway, to find a place where you're sort of relaxed and... Um, relaxed enough to sort of affect an easy um, familiarity with the viewer through the through the TV camera. How nerve-wracking was it for you doing your first history TV gig then? Was it nerve-wracking? Um, not nerve-wracking, but bewildering, mm-hmm. I think. I think nerve-wracking for me was like, was, was speaking on stage for the, you know, for the first few years. I get very nervous about that. That's, that's that. I, that I, I, well, that you've got like an instant feedback because you can see everyone sort of looking back at you. Yeah. Whereas TV, actually, is that camera, and it's almost you're a bit detached from the audience. You're completely detached, and there's also if you're making documentary, it's different if you're doing live TV. But there's also the sense that you're just going to do it as many times as it takes until until you sort of get it right. But, it, but it's quite bewildering because you know you go into television. Um, the, the, or the sort of arena of, of making television. And no one in general ex- explains to you, hey, this is what we're, we're going to do and this is what all this sort of terminology means. This is the difference between sync and non-sync and big wide and 200 and, you know, the, the sort of the terminology of the camera that everyone working TV is, is so used to talking about that they just assume that it's part of everybody's vocabulary. And... Uh, you know, and you're usually shooting things out of sequence and you're doing everything a million times and you very seldom get feedback about why. And so you're thinking, oh, my God, did I do that wrong? Or no, they were just doing it different different shot sizes. And and so there's an awful lot technically to learn, which, as I said, you know, I was fortunate that I'd, I'd, been, I'd been given a, a degree, actually a fairly healthy degree of, of training for at five. Um, but there's still a lot to pick up. And so it's just a huge amount of information to absorb. And then the sense that uh, everyone's looking at you. Um, so it's, it's, it's weird. It was weird. It was weird. But um, also enormous fun. I mean, come on. You know, it's just sort of walking around and talking and, uh, and talking about something that ideally you, one feels passionate about and has strong opinions on. And so I, I enjoyed starting out a lot and I, I enjoy it in a different way today starting out it was like a massive adrenaline all the time exhausted and I lose a lot of weight over the course of shooting 
Most people put on weight when they shoot. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because you, you, you should try and stay yeah, in the Premier Inns and eating and hungry yeah. horses and eating fish and chips basically three times a day. Uh, I used to lose, like, shed weight while we were filming. Just I'd be, like, stressed. Like, not stressed, but, like, huge adrenaline Living on going adrenaline. all the time. And uh, and now I, I just put on loads of weight when we're filming. <laughs> I'm just eating a hungry horse three times a day. Like, I, you know, I'm not, like, stressed out about it. But I should make it plain I'm not at all complaining. Um, I'm just sort of observing the oddities of this strange you know people are still captivated by television aren't they yeah definitely you know, even in this age of of new media and and the, the extraordinary ease to market of broadcasting you know you just pick up your phone film something and stick it on youtube tv's essential sort of cut off you know high wall you know difficult barrier to entry still makes it this magic this allure that people are fascinated by and desperate to know what happens behind the curtain and off the camera and um and it's extraordinary that that medium's retained its allure even in these times hola hello this call is being translated abuela listen to what my phone can do Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Awaken your senses with a curiously refreshing Hendrix Cucumber Lemonade. Curious how? Cue the aroma. Marvelous. Cue the taste. Magnificent. Cue the cucumber. That's the refreshing secret. Hendrix is uncommonly crafted with cucumbers, roses, artistry, and imagination. Other gins are ordinary, but Hendrix is refreshingly curious. Discover Hendrix Gin cocktail recipes at HendrixGin.com. Please drink the unusual responsibly. Hendrix Gin, 44% alcohol by volume. Bottled and imported by William Grant Sons, New York, New York. Copyright 2024. So one of the TV series that you've recently been involved with is Nightfall. So this is a historical drama. Um, it recently aired in the US and it's coming to the UK this week. So by the time this podcast goes out, it will be on TV. It covers the downfall of the Knights Templar, which was a real event in history. But it also includes, you know, mythologies about the Grail and these fictional characters from Arthurian legend. Um so I know this is another big debate. What's what's your take on the balance between historical accuracy in historical drama and then, you know, drama? What's my take? My take is that uh, it is always a blend and that, you know, at one end of that, the scale, you have something, let's say, like Wolf Hall, uh, which is usually these days held up as a sort of epitome of of um, being as historically accurate as possible. But note those words, as possible. They, they implicitly recognise that it is impossible, uh, that it is, you know, it's not going to happen, that you're not going to be fully historically accurate. And guess why? Because you're making a drama. At the other end of the scale, there are, you know, there are projects which, you know, I, I don't 
think there's any profit in naming, in which history, you know, informs, let's say, the costume department to an extent and set design. And it's a sort of broad locator for a, a dramatic piece and really it's not that important. Um, you know, you can make great historical pieces at either end of the scale. I mean, let's take Blackadder. Blackadder II, not many elements of Blackadder II were authentic to the uh, real court of Queen Elizabeth, but it was a fantastic historical piece, making these, these kind of layered jokes about history as we consume, regurgitate and perceive it, and it was brilliantly written, uh, comedic piece in historical costume. I mean, I don't think anyone would claim it was historically, quote-unquote, accurate, but it was fantastic, classic British television and still stands up today. Gets people interested in history. Gets people interested in history. Um, so my first observation is that there, there's not a, like, a line of wrongness to rightness that exactly tracks with accuracy to with non-accuracy to accuracy. I do think it, it helps enormously if the writers of historical drama or comedy or whatever it is uh, are interested in and immersed in the historical source material. Because when that doesn't happen, usually that's when uh, they, they write themselves into mistakes that could easily have been avoided. The other thing I was thinking was, do people, do audience, the audience actually want historical accuracy? They may say that they do, but I always wonder, like, would do they actually want how women were treated back then? Do you know what I mean? Like, do they actually want the accuracy? Because it might not be quite, it might not be as palatable as... I think you're hitting on a very important and interesting um, point about history you know, and, and drama, which is to say that, Generally speaking, if something is brilliantly written, you, you'll find that the audience will go with you. You make any historical piece, you know, from the get-go, you have, you have to accept that there will be a small quotient of people who are going to point out the things that you get wrong anyway because it's a sort of hobby for certain people that's a bit like picking their scabs. <laughs> and that's, ju that's just how it is. But um, usually, I think... You only get into sort of mainstream kind of, hey, you got it wrong, history beatings, if actually there's a deeper problem with the programme and that it's not very well written. So you think people overlook things a little bit if, if you know, it's a great story with great characterisation? You can buy yourself an awful lot of sympathy and understanding on behalf of the audience uh, if, you, if you have a compelling piece of television um, that you tend that tends to evaporate the goodwill of the audience evaporates quite quickly if you just have a very badly written piece, and then then they just go looking for things that are wrong with it, and it's always easy to find historical errors. It's much easier to find the errors than to start listing the things that the the you know the hardworking and intelligent people who make these programs have striven to get right, which is mm -hmm. often quite a lot. So what's your take on a show like Game of Thrones, for example? That's obvi obviously, that's fantasy. It's not pretending to be history, but it's got a lot of medieval inspirations. Do you think um, these kind of shows help people get more interested in, in the medieval period? Yeah, of course. I mean, I, you know, Game of Thrones has been uh, a phenomenal success for lots of reasons. It's done an amazing job, I feel, for getting people to engage with the Middle Ages. And of course, I don't think it, I've never, ever, ever in my entire life met anyone who said, oh, I watched Game of Thrones. I mean, so uh, what's, you know, tell me, who was this Daenerys Targaryen? You know, what was, where was she really from? No, 
everyone is cognizant that there's a difference between fantasy set in a sort of historical period and the actual thing. Uh, but yeah, it, it's definitely opened up a sort of a bigger audience of people who would maybe migrate from, hey, I love Thrones to, hey, you know, I might I might read a little medieval history as well. I, you know, I was joking to say it was a sort of gateway drug uh, into the, the harder stuff. Um, I, I sort of still stand by that analogy in that not everyone is going to graduate from Thrones to... Uh, Wars of the Roses. <laughs> to, yeah, to reading Jonathan Sumption's sort of, you know, five volumes of the Hundred Years' War. But, I mean, there will be people who take that path and, and God bless them and good luck to them. Have you ever considered writing, maybe not a fantasy novel like Game of Thrones, or maybe, um, but for historical fiction? Yeah, I've sort of considered it many times and been asked to do it many times and even sort of started doing it many times and then... Being, become sort of uh, laced with icy sweat at the thought of uh, of actually sitting down and writing fiction because the, the potential for getting fiction wrong, it seems to me, is massively greater than getting That's history so wrong. interesting. And You'd think it'd be the op- I'd think it would be the opposite because I'm like, oh, history, you've got so many facts that could be wrong. Maybe you're right. And maybe I, I, I always come back to finding the idea of writing fiction incredibly exposing and I just suspect that I would be awful. I mean, I might be wrong. And, I, you know, I reserve the right to do it one day. I always keep thinking, all right, next year I'm going to bite the bullet and, uh, and become the next Bernard Cornwell or whatever. And then next year I agree to write another history book. Uh, and then, you know, there's a bit of me that goes, well, you are doing the sort of thing that you're kind of good at. I mean... It's a bit of a stick with what you know. Well, I'm also still, look, I'm 36 years old, nearly 37. And uh, I still, although, you know, I, I may be eaten by a rhinoceros tonight, I would hope I have a little bit of time left and that I, I, I'm, I'm relatively early in my career and there's time to do these things. And so I don't feel under, well, my point here is that I don't feel under a, a sort of massive pressure to go and write fiction tomorrow but like I say you know I reserve the right in six months time to say the opposite of this (laughs) yeah no that makes sense though and it's a completely different kettle of fish yeah I mean I would like to write a cookbook historical cookbook (laughs) maybe maybe it would be a a different kind of cookbook I reserve the right (laughs) I'll I'll tell you what kind of cook but it's the same sort of thing if I went to major and said hey you know what I don't think history next time I think cookbook I mean, I think she'd shoot me and she'd be right to do so. Or, you know, I want to write um, a volume of poetry. We eagerly wait for that. Right. <laughs> Doggerel. Um, the reaction in both of those cases would be, really? Are you sure you're not insane? Um, and I think that actually you know, it's not that much of a difference to me saying, well, I think... Now, commercially, that's not the case, obviously, because there's a much greater shared market between history and historical fiction. And... Um, and like I say, you know, it, maybe. But, I, you know, I'm writing a history book at the moment. Well, why don't we talk about that? What are you writing at the moment? What I'm writing at the moment is uh, a book called Crusaders. At least that's what it's called at the moment. And having written a book about the Templars, you know, the one from last autumn, I, that was a kind of a, um, a thread through the Crusades in a way. One of the reasons I've done the books in this order is because I was like moving into crusading history and wanted a sort of, you know, focus for writing my first book about it. 
Um, but the, the next book takes the same period broadly, but just blows out into a much bigger, more epic kind of book altogether. And so it's covering... So it's what I didn't want, what I don't want to write is, uh, you know, yet another version of Runciman, um, a big, or, or you know, um, top-down, omniscient kind of survey of the Crusades, partly because there are much cleverer, better historians than me that have done that already. Tom Asprey has done it. Uh, Chris Tyman has done it. Um, Jonathan Phillips has done it. And all three of those have done brilliant. Jonathan Riley Smith, in the late Jonathan Riley Smith. All of those people have written brilliant histories of the Crusades. Um, so I'm trying to do what I feel like I, I know how to do, which is is human story, human narrative. And so it's it's telling the, the a history of the Crusades through the eyes of a sort of a gallery of characters from across those times. Um, so that's the, that's the technique. And if anyone's read my Templars book, and they, they, they're the first chapter in which you see, you see Jerusalem in 1102-3 through the eyes of Seawolf coming off this uh, ship that gets then destroyed behind him in the sea and then walking out into this kind of wild west of Jerusalem after the First Crusade. It's kind of that technique writ large. So who are the big characters in this then? Well, I don't think I'm going to tell you that because oh, I'm, I'm, spoilers. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm enjoying writing and I do want to retain a little bit of mystery about this book. But sure. um, And also because I'm early in the, in the, in the actual writing of it. Uh, but what I will say is that I, I didn't, I, I'm not just, it's not just going to be sort of Richard the Lionheart followed by Frederick Hohenstaff and followed by, you know, it's not a white man's crusade, you know, it's not a white Frenchman's crusade. It's about seeing this period uh, through a, a sort of a multitude of eyes, Western, you know, Latin Christian, uh, Eastern Christian, Islamic, Jewish, Mongol, pagan, when we talk about the Baltic, regions you know moorish uh you know this this, this all of these you know uh, all of these people were were deeply um invested at different points in what we now sort of homogeneously call the crusades and i want to reflect the fact that this this story is t or rather um get away from the fact that this story has so often just been told through the eyes of people from france mm. and italy and a bit from england effectively as though their view really defined what happened. Um, so there's a bit of a sort of fusion of viewpoints in there. Uh, I, I'm also interested on a sort of deeper level about the idea of crusading and partly how it, it evolved at the time, but more how it's evolved since. Because the word crusade is used an awful lot today and, and not just in, in sort of trite newspaper politics kind of terms but actually it, it, it's a it's a cultural and historical touchstone that, that's adopted and adapted and uh, owned by lots of different groups you know the european far right uh, the american far right mexican drug gang like los caballeros templarios um isis you know calling westerners crusaders you know there's, there's a lot of groups trying to take ownership of this idea and uh, and perpetuate the the notion of a, a religious slash civilizational war between Christianity and Islam. Sorry, I've, I've downloaded some slightly in, incoherent thoughts there, but <laughs> that's usually how, how it is when, you, you know, I'm writing. That. Yeah, 
It sounds amazing. And you've actually, you've got a book coming out in August, which is when this podcast is out, um, called a Color, The Colour of Time. The Colour of Time. you co-authored with Marina Amaral. Um, would you like, yeah, tell our listeners a bit about this book and the idea behind it. So about two years ago, uh, I was sort of wasting my life on the internet and I saw people, other historians, you know, tweeting this image of a sort of good-looking young man in his 20s who looked like he was in One Direction or a Calvin Klein model or whatever. Piercing blue eyes, you know, sort of bouffant hair. Um, and this photo had been taken in 1865 and it was a guy called Lewis Powell who'd been involved in the plot to kill Lincoln at the end of the American Civil War. And the disjuncture between, oh, my God, that's an historical photograph and but it's in color and it, it looks like something that was taken yesterday for the cover of GQ just like kind of blew my mind and and I I mean we've got a copy of the the picture on one of the walls over here I, I I'm still as obsessed with this image as I was when I first saw it and I kind of traced back through the tweets to where this had come from and it was a colorized image of a uh, Alexander Gardner photograph. Alexander Gardner was one of the great Civil War photographers. Uh, it was a black and white photograph originally. It was a mugshot slash propaganda of Lewis Powell when he was imprisoned on the USS Saugus. Um, it was taken shortly before he was hanged for his part in, in killing the president. It's an incredibly compelling photograph in black and white, but you, you'd, today most people would look past it in black and white. But, Colorized. I was like, oh my God, what is this and who's done this? And so I went back and tracked, and it was this, you know, Marina Amaral, who at that time was 21 years old, lives in Belo Horizonte, Brazil, uh, incredibly passionate historian, first and foremost, obsessed with history, uh, but also by chance, lucky her, an incredible artist. Just this eye and this talent and this ability. So she's taking black and white photographs and using Photoshop and her extensive historical research to colorize them as faithfully as she can, according to what can be known about the colors in that photograph, and then filling in the rest. It's a standard historical process. You learn what you can, you, you extrapolate what you can't. Um, and anyway, I said, to, I was like, well, you appear to be some sort of genius. When's your book coming out? No, no, I don't have a book. Uh, I said, right, well, in that case, let's do a book. <laughs> So I, I, we agreed to work together on this book. And like I said, I thought this was going to take about four or five months. And it's taken two years. It's a book of 200 colorized photographs covering the period 1850 to 19, roughly 1960. More or less the first century of photography, when predominantly up until the end point, it was black and white. And these photographs, which... I've worked with Marina to select and I've written a sort of 40,000-word text to accompany them. These photographs tell a story, a world history. It's avowedly a global history. It, it doesn't just cover America and uh, Western Europe. It's Eastern Europe, it's Asia, it's Africa, it's, you know, it's, it's the world. Uh, in an incredibly formative period, it's the Crimean War to the Cold War, it's the Steam Age to the Space Age. I can't remember how many books I've written. I think it's eight, give or take, and... This one arriving, you know, my first copy, you know, the first one sort of got off the press, uh, came and I, I took the cellophane off the outside and I, I haven't been so excited about one of my books arriving, I don't think, ever. Because we 
busted our necks to make this book. And it involved a whole range of different processes that aren't usually part of making a history book. You know, a huge amount of work on on the reproducing the, the photographs so they look good on the page, a massive amount of organisational work in, in terms of setting the, the order for the, the photographs, the selection of the photographs. I mean, I think, I honestly think I looked at 10,000 photographs <laughs> to select the 200 are in the book. How difficult was that? Select? And what, what informed your choices? A thousand reasons, probably. Um, how difficult was it? It was very difficult. Uh, what informed the choices... Um, a range of factors, which is why it was so difficult. Number one, they had to be good photographs. Define good, well, brilliantly composed, taken by great photographers, significant in, in, a, in some historical sense. That doesn't mean they have to be of a famous person, but, they, but have some, we can say something that justifies including them in the world history of this period. Um, technically, they had to be good files you know we're working with getty images and and getty have some fantastic have a vast archive of historical black and white images but a an enormous variation in quality of those images as they've been uploaded and so the you know i became quite versed in dots per inch you know the the, the size in pixels of a particular photograph knowing whether Marina was going to be able to work on it or not. And often we'd get half or three quarters of the way through her work on a photograph and we'd just have to junk it. Photograph doesn't work. Or you'd find the photograph be mislabeled or you'd find uh, like a whole range of different reasons why it wouldn't work. And then when one photo dropped out, I'd have set in each chapter, there's 11 chapters in the book, each one between 17 and 23 photographs. I mean, I would have had a very careful running order that made sure there was a range of... That, that firstly, there was this was telling the story of the decade in question properly, that there was a range of, you know, parts of the world represented, that there were lots of women, there were lots of people who weren't white blokes with big beards, you know, it's the 21st century, I wanted to try and make a 21st century history book. One photo drops out, the balance skews. And then other photos would have to change. And some of those might be photos that worked. or that, you know, So this is a, a big job. And for months and months, you know, first six months of this year, when we were right in the weeds with getting this book out, the, where we're sitting now in my kitchen, there's a, sort of a block, you know, a central block. What do you reckon this is? Nine feet long? Something yeah. like that. This was covered, <laughs> covered. Uh, you know, two or three photos deep in photos. The floor, the sofa, my desk, the whole office, the walls were covered in historical photographs. Wheatling those down to 200 images and then writing the text, particularly a, a sort of modern history text, which was something I hadn't necessarily written about since I was in university. Damn, it was it was quite hard work. And, um, <laughs> very different kind of challenge different. to but, what you've had before. But also it was, it was, it was great because it was collaborative and, and Marina is, an, is a, like... God, I can't tell you how good she is to work with. She is like a dream. She, I've never met anyone with so much like drive, ambition, talent, good humour, like all in one kind of package. It's like, oh my God, you, you don't think you have any idea how good you are. And she's only 20, 21, she's did you 23. say? 23 I think now. she's 23 now. She's yeah. 23. She's a genius. <laughs> and they are really remarkable. Like it's a fantastic way of accessing history and looking at history in a way you've never done before it's like each page is a window into it yeah I mean the the idea what I didn't want to make it was a coffee table book and I, I we I, I forbade the use of that term this is a book that uh is to be read as much as it is to be looked at mm-hmm. it, it is a history book 
Uh, it's priced as a history book at 25 quid rather than, you know, 40, which a coffee table book would be. It's, it's the same size as uh, Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls, you know, in, in that it, it will fit on your bookshelf. Um, and I've designed it as well, or Marina and I have designed it, um, so that, yes, you can open it at any page and there'll be a photograph and a caption of 250 words that will explain that, but you can also read it in sequence. So each caption follows on from the last and, on, and leads on to the next. So that if you read this from start to finish, it reads as one text. And that, I don't mind telling you, <laughs> was hard. I can imagine, like, tying what? <laughs> like what you're tying together. Yeah, and so, yeah, and you, you know, you're trying to, like, cover all those... You know, I wanted there to be Japanese history and Chinese history. And yeah, how does Japan in 1850 link right through to... You know? Well, <laughs> you know, you buy the book, you, you'll find, find out. out but, exactly. but actually, um, yeah, that, I mean, that process sort of helped the build in that, in putting together a sort of thematic uh, arc through each decade, which helped select the photographs, and then arranging them so they told a story but stayed roughly in chronological sequence. I mean, all of that was like doing... It was like doing a Rubik's Cube a little bit, except doing it the hard way if you do Rubik's Cube. I have to, I've never solved one, right. so anyways, the hard well, way let me, to let me. Me. <laughs> let me tell you about Rubik's Cube very briefly. I can teach you to solve Rubik's Cube in two hours. Okay. It's algorithmic, the solution. Like, and once you know the patterns of moves, you can solve Rubik's Cube literally every single time. There is a way to solve Rubik's Cube that's not algorithmic, and that's by, like, working it out and, and moving all these different moving parts. I think that's how I've always tried to do it. Yeah, that's hard. Now, there was no algorithmic way to solve the problem of a colour of time, so I had to do it like doing a Rubik's Cube the hard way. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's probably too abstract an analogy, but... Um, well, it sounds like a struggle, because I... <laughs> weirdly, I did a lot of Rubik's Cube while I was doing it. <laughs> Because so you could be physically having the same challenge. Well, no, actually, so that I could uh, physically do the opposite challenge because it was so frustrating trying to uh, often trying to arrange all these different moving parts without others moving in the wrong direction. So to do a Rubik's cube, which is a purely algorithmic uh, exercise, was actually quite relaxing. It was like, here's a puzzle I can solve in a self-contained three minutes. Bit of a boast there, because three minutes is quite a good time. <laughs> uh, however, uh, so I, I can do this, and then I won't feel, feel so bad about the fact that I, I'm having difficulty solving that bigger problem. That's so funny. I'm not, now I'm picturing my question earlier as, what's your recommendation to a young budding historian? Well, if you're ever puzzling over a, an anthology of pictures and text, pick up a Rubik's Cube. Pick up a Rubik's Cube. <laughs> well, no, but that's, that's quite good advice. I mean, like, funny as it sounds... Um, I do recommend having hobbies or uh, outside what you do to, to sort of... Because history can get you down and, and drive you mad. Um, and it also is, uh, even if you don't want distraction, it's also a, a subject that's quite intensely bound up in problem-solving. And if you can have some sort of analogous like problem-solving... I could do a lot of cryptic crosswords as well quite obsessed with cryptic crosswords and um i th i mean I, i'm i'm never going to be in bletchley park right you know i'm not I'm, I'm not enigma cracking standard uh but i do enjoy the process because it's um because it's just sort of idle leisurely problem solving and i i do sort of sense as well that it's a form of useful exercise for your brain mm -hmm. are you a sudoku fan no no 
I mean, I, I'd, I'd sit down and do a Sudoku, but I don't think I'd derive much pleasure from it. <laughs> why, why do you think that is? I don't know if it's because once you know how to do them, they're, they're, you don't actually have to use your brain that much. They, I don't know, sort of just slots into place. Maybe it's something like that. It's like a jigsaw rather than... That sounds, that sounds like a Rubik's Cube. So maybe I would enjoy it. Now I'm into Ruby. But um, the cryptic crossword, I find, um, it tests your vocabulary as well. And it's, mm. it's not just it's like it's a puzzle, but it's also a... Um, and that, that's quite useful if you're a writer. Well, as we're nearing the end of the podcast, um, I'm going to give you three quick-fire questions oh, no, to answer. These are general knowledge. <laughs> no, they're not general knowledge. Okay. This is going to be... So just before I came in to interview you, your daughter asked me, are you doing 73 questions with my dad? And I said no. But she's inspired me to do three questions with you. Well, they are start. history related. Okay, hit me. So, which person from history would you most like to meet, and why? You can't think about this too long. Um, okay, so off, immediate, immediate, instinctive, knee-jerk answers. Right, uh, Henry V. Why? Um, because uh, he's my favourite Plantagenet king, um, and I, you know. In a sense that I want to meet one of them, I'd probably, you know, I want to meet my favourite Plantagenet. God, I've given him enough of my life in this <laughs> dynasty. I'd, I'd like to, to catch hold of one. Which historical period would you like to live in? Um, probably none of them, but no, <laughs> in just, a literal well, sense. I mean, my cut-off point for how far back I'm going to go is um, penicillin and anaesthesia. So, and really, I don't want to live through the, the world wars. Um, so, I'm actually probably only going back to like the sixties. And seeing as you're a sports writer, um, have you recovered from England's defeat in the semi-finals last week? Uh, yeah, this is going to sound unpatriotic going on treasonous, but I enjoy the World Cup more when England aren't involved because um, it, it's just this uh, very obvious cycle of, of false hope. And he, even... So what happened in this World Cup was quite interesting uh, and the main achievement, as I think we'd all now recognise with the England team, was not just to be despicable people. And actually, the pattern of the football, let's be clear about it, was no different to any other World Cup. In that they lost the first good team they played, Belgium. Then they lost the second good team they played, which used to be what happened until very recently. Um, what was unusual was they then lost the third good, good team they played, but really that was still the first good team, because it was Belgium again. So, I mean, has England's football advanced dramatically no they they got a, a pretty navigable side of the draw and there was a weird world cup in that so many big teams fell out so early um were they nice people who made this this country sort of briefly happy yeah and that's good but um you know world cups come to an end and I, actually I, I enjoyed the final yesterday a lot france were you glad france won Football, well, the 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 Jules Rem the World Cup, <laughs> the Jules Ramey, as we pronounce it in this country, uh, turns out it was coming home, given that Jules Ramey is a Frenchman. Uh, I was personally glad that France won because I had them in the work sweepstake. Did and you? I was dreading that England and France were going to be up against each other because I was like, well got money riding on France. <laughs> well, yeah, but you shouldn't, you shouldn't be dreading that because that's that's the ultimate hedge, isn't it? You know, you've got emotion on one side, you've like, got money on the do other. Do I value 20 quid 
would I be happy to lose 20 quid for, Eng for England to win? And I don't know if I would. I well, that's, that I think that's, that's much more unpatriotic than what I, I just said. Well, on that note, thank you so much for coming on the 500th episode of our podcast. We should have done 500 years of history. I should have grilled you on 500 years. You shouldn't do that, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you one more thing. Uh, that I've started swimming a lot recently, and I try to do 100 lengths a day, right? And it's very boring, it's very boring to do that. It's, it's repetitive, but that's part of the point in that it's it's also meditative. But in order to, but you, once you do it every day, you get you get bored and you lose count as well. So here's a tip for all your readers who are thinking of swimming a large number of lengths every day. I now count down from a hundred to zero. This is super nerdy. You're looking at me. <laughs> okay, so just honestly, go with me. I, I'm with you. I'm with you. So like, say ninety nine. Uh, as I'm swimming that length, I try and think of an event that happened in the year that ended with that number. So 99, I'm going to go, okay, 1399, deposition of mm -hmm. Richard II. 98, <laughs> I might go modern, go France 98, last time France won the World Cup. 97, uh, Edward I, um, the final issue, although not confirmation of Magna Carta, 1297. See, see? And then you go on and on like that. And um, I wouldn't have wanted to sit here and do that with you for 500 years. It would have been monotonous that for the reader, been for the a listeners. Pretty boring podcast. Yeah, it'd be pretty boring. <laughs> but uh, uh, if, if this 500th anniversary podcast is about gaining insight into my mind, which weirdly appears to be about, <laughs> I think there's some insight for you. It's not a pretty view. That was Dan Jones. And as you'll have heard, he has a new book, The Colour of Time, which has just been published by Apollo. Now, if you'd like to get the chance to meet Dan in the flesh, then you can do so at our History Weekend in Winchester, where he'll be talking about his new book. For more details and tickets, please visit historyweekend.com. And this is the last of this week's special podcasts, but you can, of course, catch up with any you've missed via your usual podcast channels and at historyextra.com. And the website is also the place to listen to many more of our past 500 episodes, some of which are only available to BBC History magazine subscribers via our online library. And meanwhile, we'll be back on Monday with more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.